0: players in that journey and at some point we'll come to the uh, the big elephant in the room uh, of
1: influencers yes yes people say that uh, I should get Z-class security (laughs) after I've tweeted the amount I have about influencers (laughs) Uh, but yes we'll come to that so
0: Welcome to the 19th episode of the Indian Market Story. We're delighted to be joined by Mr. Neil Borati, the Deputy Editor of The Mint and the Head of Personal Finance of The Mint as well. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. We're really, really happy to be having you on this podcast. Pleasure we have plenty here. of uh, really interesting things to discuss today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Not at all. So, um, you know, as part of this podcast, we love to tell the story of, you know, where India is going and, you know, where we've been. And uh, the really interesting thing that I wanted to talk about today is the rise of 100 million DMAT accounts, you know, over the pandemic and even a little bit before, the level of retail participation we've seen in, you know, financial markets has been unprecedented. And as a journalist, I'm sure you have great insight into how that journey has been and, you know, the various players in that journey. And at some point, we'll come to the the big elephant in the room uh,
1: of influencers. Yes, yes. People say that uh, I should get Z-class security. (laughs) <laughs> after I've tweeted the amount I have about influencers, <laughs> uh, But yes, we'll come to that. So so on the broad shift, uh, it took us all by surprise. Mm-hmm. I honestly never expected the kind of interest and surge uh, that happened in equity investing. I mean, if you think about our own parents and their journeys, mm-hmm. uh, at least with my parents, you know, their doctors, never much interested in stock markets, uh, investing, etc., their entire savings were in real estate. Uh, and that's a really uh, fun story, uh, by itself, because it tells you the perils of real estate investment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, all that has changed with uh, millennials and with Gen Z and fantastic thing. There's no two ways about it.
0: Yeah. So I think one thing that strikes me as having been critical to the sort of explosion of, of retail interest is the ease with which people can now interact with the financial markets, you know? Um, the rise of discount brokers and, you know, people like Zero da, Five Pesa, Grow, UpStocks, and really many, many more have made it so easy to open a DMAT account and so cheap. Um, and another thing that sort of seems to have helped out is, is there's a lot of information asymmetry that used to exist in the 90s. That seems to have maybe gone away because maybe in the '90s a lot of the information was only with the newspapers, but now you know you can find company results online. You can do a lot more than you know what you used to. So how I mean, as somebody that's in the media, how has your role within this ecosystem changed? Where how is this uh, how has the media evolved, particularly financial media?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right if you think back uh, 10 20 years ago um, financial media including markets media was access driven mm-hmm. access was the usp mm-hmm. uh, and your ability to talk to people who, who had information now the information is fully democratized that cannot be the usp that cannot be mm-hmm. uh, your mode your mode now has to be analysis your mm-hmm. mode has to be communication where you explain things to people mm-hmm. and uh, and grow your audience that way
0: mm-hmm. So, and I think you've at the Mint you've done a really great job of that, you know. And I think you've gone in a lot of depth uh, in explaining a lot of financial products and the way people are investing money and how people should be investing their money. So maybe let's talk about you know some of the players in this ecosystem. Maybe we can start with the regulated financial institutions. I'd say RAs, sorry, research analysts for people that don't know, uh, registered investment advisors, brokers, and mutual fund distributors. Because as someone that's within that ecosystem. It seems like we're under a lot of regulation, uh, particularly over the last several years. So how, how have we got to this point, you know, what's, what's led
1: us here. Yeah. Um, so the traditional ecosystem has been dominated by bank RMS. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I think they are still dominant. Mm-hmm. What has changed is that new categories like RIAs and RAs have come up. And in the initial years, unfortunately, a lot of players got these licenses. Uh, stock tippers mostly from indore mm-hmm. um, and when uh, their you know their clients started complaining and Sebi began realizing what's happened the entire industry came under a lot of regulation mm-hmm. and today's the burden has become extremely heavy it's the pendulum has swung totally the other way
0: yeah so i think four specific pieces of regulation most recently that have really struck me is i think now RA's, RI's, and stockbrokers all have to deal with an extremely, extremely stringent code on advertising. Um, they're mulling a central authority for returns verification, and um, they're also thinking about having a payment interface so that all payments that are delivered to RA's, RI's only go through a SEBI registered link. So it seems like they're really clamping down on these activities. So what do you think is the future of you know these institutions? Do you think RAS RIS can effectively play a part in helping India manage its finances, given the amount of regulation that exists. So,
1: some of these regulations, uh, I'm actually positive on, uh, specifically the Performance Validation Agency that Sebi has moveded, mm-hmm. because today there's a big problem with fake screenshots, fake videos, mm-hmm. PNL gaming, etc. Mm-hmm. So, if you do have uh, an authority which which is independent, is able to verify that these are your actual returns. Mm-hmm. And if intermediaries like RIAs, uh, even MFDs, if Mm -hmm. they're able to uh, show to clients credibly that this is the return that I've given to my Mm -hmm. other clients, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other circulars that you mentioned, it will take adjustment. It will take, uh, you know, there's a lot of things at the back end that existing players, new players will have to adapt to. Mm -hmm. Um, But hopefully SEBI will also loosen up some of the RA regulations. That's what mm-hmm. we've been arguing for for a long, long time.
0: Yeah. But so, what, one interesting thing, particularly about the advertising code, is it's extremely stringent. And one would suspect that the performance validation agency would be similarly stringent. Mm. Props to SEBI, right? Like they do things to protect the investor and okay, they may be a bit, you know, heavy handed, but on the balance of cost and benefit. What concerns me though is that. We don't have enough qualified financial advice in India. Um, and a lot of what this regulation does is it makes the barriers to entry a little bit higher. Um, and that's just something I'm concerned about. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about you know, how you think, whether you think this industry will genuinely grow. and Because it seems like there's a need for it.
1: Yes, um, you're right. Already the entry barriers are extremely high. Now, I'll give you an example. Just to be a person associated with financial advice. So the, like the second run assistant to an RIA, mm-hmm. you have to have two years of experience and you have to have a postgraduate degree in certain subjects, finance, uh, mm-hmm. I think, accounting, etc. Et mm-hmm. Now it's a chicken and egg situation because to get the experience, you should be with an RIA. Mm-hmm. But you can't be with an RIA unless you have the experience. Yeah. So essentially what it seems to say is get your experience elsewhere, work with a distributor and then have a change of heart at some point and move here. Mm-hmm. which is impractical. Mm-hmm. So there are things like this. Then the fact that RIs have to give the same exam every three years. No mm-hmm. other profession wants, has that. Yeah. My parents are doctors. Yeah. yeah their yeah. CPE, they have to attend some lectures. That's yeah. it. Here, they have to give the same exam every three years. So imagine somebody who's built a practice over 15, 20 years, you know, one bad exam day and suddenly they <laughs> can't do their business anymore. So, so there's a lot of things like this. Uh, I, my hope is that SEBI will loosen uh, a lot of these regulations.
0: I mean, all, all respect to you know financial professionals, but we're not more important than doctors. <laughs> That's this for sure. You can't have Correct. more regulation on financial services professionals than you do on doctors. That that doesn't really make sense Correct. to me. Yeah. Correct. Uh, but so from from an RI RERI perspective, my understanding is that the the majority of the business model is all fee based and. Um, there seems to be a lot of reluctance. Anecdotally, I feel like there's a lot of reluctance in Indians to pay fees for mm-hmm. investment advice. Um, I mean, at the minute you guys do a subscription, have you seen that attitude changing? Do you feel like that attitude will change? What's the future of
1: this? You know, I think the attitude is changing. Uh, you know, If you think of OTT platforms today, Netflix, Amazon, people are starting to pay for it. And that's getting into their psychology. Mm-hmm. So that translates into more... Uh, or a higher tendency to pay for newspapers. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it will also feed through to RIA services, to RA services. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think of some of these platforms like Smallcase, right? They started subscriptions mm-hmm. uh, for for many of these services. So, so it is slowly happening, um, but it will obviously take quite some time.
0: Yeah, I, I can uh, I can see that. I can definitely see that. So, on one side of um, on one side of the equation, you have these fee-based platforms, RAs, RIAs, RIAs. Or whatever it might be and on the other side you have you know transaction based business models like brokers and mfds um, now brokers is, i mean it's a conversation i think we'll have in a minute but what's the MFD business model and i to be honest i know nothing about you know the kind of regulatory environment they operate in and you know the future for them is like so maybe i'd love if you could shed some light on that
1: it is extremely loose uh, there are very few regulations on mfds um, but I would classify MFDS into two mm-hmm. subcategories. One is bank relationship managers, mm-hmm. RM's, and this is where the most of the problem is today, because they have targets. Uh, they end up generally selling commissions, selling products which have the most commission, mm-hmm. uh, and they have quick turnover. You know, one RM is in one bank for you know a couple of years, moves to the next bank. It's it's a couple of good. years is in over six days. Yeah, yeah.
0: They, they move so quickly our HDFC, CRM is gone every three months. Correct,
1: correct, correct. So there is no incentive to build a long-term relationship with your customer and mm-hmm. that's harmful for the customer and for you as the as a distributor. Uh, on the other hand, there are independent MFDs who have invested their time and effort to build mm-hmm. these relationships mm-hmm. who have served their customers well. Mm-hmm. You don't always need regulations uh, to build a good business. Sometimes people are just on their own very very principled, mm-hmm. um, but despite uh, this body of of good MFDS, uh, you know, very much being in place, in the long term, you know, within the commission model, there's an inherent incentive to uh, recommend higher commission products to mm-hmm. some degree, mm-hmm. you know, and therefore the future has to be investment advisory mm-hmm. rather than commissions. Definitely, definitely.
0: I think uh, I think you did a story at some point around who is paying commissions and where the commissions are being paid. And it seems like there was a lot of conflict of interest, right? Uh,
1: Between between banks and their own AMCs and something of the sort, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, absolutely right. Um, So, you know, when I make a statement that banks tend to recommend the highest commission products, we all know it anecdotally, but how do you prove it with the data? So thankfully, banks are required to disclose... From which amc they're getting their commissions mm-hmm. and mutual funds are required to disclose which distributors they're paying those commissions to mm-hmm. so all you have to do is compare the two lists right and that is what we did uh and in many cases more than 90 percent of a bank's commission is coming from the uh, sister amc and sister amc is paying 90 percent co- commission to that same group's bank right. clearly it's not unbiased
0: yeah there's a there's a little golden handshake at the back that, that's correct. going on it correct. seems correct yeah, but, I mean, um, I guess looking into the future, do you think, you know, the uh, Amphi or Sebi or anybody is going to get involved? Because one thing I've heard of is standardized commissions and standardized commission payouts.
1: Is that likely to happen? So actually a lot of progress has happened even on the commissions front over many years, right? From the abolition of upfront commissions in 2009 all the way to um, Sebi saying that, sorry, abolition of entry loads in 2009 mm-hmm. and then upfront commissions went uh, if I remember correctly in 2018 mm-hmm. um, to the current TR proposals which further envisage cuts to um, to TERs and therefore
0: commissions sorry I, I'm gonna ask a couple of questions here because I'm not sure uh, I know all the terms in, in maybe several five years. So what's entry load and TERs total expense ratio,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. So, yes. so I'll be... begin with entry yeah. loads. Entry load was a charge that used to be levied just because you invested money in a fund. Uh, right. Thankfully, SEBI got rid of that very early mm-hmm. in the game. Um, now TER, uh, so the way commissions are paid out is that a fraction of a mutual fund's expense ratio uh, mm-hmm. is is paid to distributors. When you reduce the expense ratio, automatically that commission also gets reduced. Mm-hmm. So SEBI in uh, 2018 came up with these uh, slabs Mm -hmm. that if you have a scheme which is uh, over a certain amount of AUM in size, then the commission cap falls. Mm -hmm. The the bigger the scheme becomes, the more the cap falls. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, what that led to is a lot of AMCs launching NFOs, like create another small scheme, charge a higher commission there, move money from here to there. Mm. Or... S- just sell the new stuff, don't sell the old stuff where you can charge a lower commission, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, what SEBI has proposed in its current circular is that instead of a scheme-based commission cap, there will be a uh, asset class-based commission cap. So all equity schemes um, right. of a fund house will be aggregated. Mm-hmm. And if that AUM, as, as it grows bigger and bigger and bigger, the commission cap gets lower and lower. So that takes away the incentive to launch uh, newer and newer schemes, more and more schemes. Right. Today there are something like 2,500 schemes across 44 fund houses. How on earth is anybody supposed to make head or tail? That's crazy. It's a morass and, and they're still launching more and more NFOs, but it's, I mean, it seems
0: like at least an aggregate level, it seems like, you know, investors are really lapping up these, these new offerings. Uh, and creating new SIPs en masse. Uh, is it is it a case of just a lot of
1: churn, or is this genuine growth across these, these NFOs? A lot of NFOs are push products and not pull products. Mm-hmm. And if the incentives are such that you make it lucrative for those teams to be pushed, they will be pushed and bought.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even today, um, I think more than 80% of... Uh, um, equity aum in the mutual fund industry is regular plans so the vast majority is still commanded by distributors oh not, wow yeah that's
0: interesting i did not know that at all um cuz i thought cuz my next question was going to be whether uh, direct plans are going to disrupt this this regular plans because a person can very well just go okay you've recommended this fund to me but i may as well go direct and, and enjoy a, a
1: you know a, yeah. a lower cost it doesn't seem to be happening it is not not in the equity side i think uh, one big reason for this is that um, people have or accumulate savings as they grow older mm-hmm. so today's pools of equity savings are largely with people in their 40s and 50s and 60s mm-hmm. who are used to the old fashioned distributor model mm-hmm. um over time this will flip but not yet right well, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that, you know, regular plans are still such a large component of the overall. Same. So buy. this is equity. Debt is a different story because in debt there's a lot of corporate treasuries that come in and mm-hmm. they're very clear about cutting costs. Yeah.
0: No, well, I mean that's a really interesting segue because one of the one of the things that I've been looking at for a long time and I want to get your perspective on is the debt market. And I'll maybe set some context. Because if you look at emerging economies or developed economies or even comparable, semi-comparable economies across the globe. The ratio of the equity markets to the debt markets, always the debt markets are bigger in terms of turnover, in terms of volume, in terms of participation. Um, India seems to be an odd case, so that's, that's not really how it works. It's equity markets are much bigger than debt markets. And I'm sure there's some historical reason for this, but how have we got here? And is this where the regulator wants us to
1: be, or do we expect to see some changes? Yeah, so I think that is true for the uh, retail side, the individual side. And because stocks uh, are slightly easier to understand because um, stocks have been in a long term bull market in India and people look at past returns and Mm -hmm. get really excited. Um, So if you even try to bond, buy a bond from a broker today from India's largest brokers, you'll find it extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. They have not invested the time and the resources in making that smooth. They have not gone out and educated people about bond buying. But I think that also will change for a couple of reasons. So number one, the budget, uh, it took away the tax advantage of debt mutual funds. So if you directly buy bonds after one year, capital gains is 10%. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, What was the old regime before they changed this tax? So then uh, debt funds, if you held them for more than three years, they were taxed at 20% along with indexation. So Mm -hmm. it was a bit of a no brainer to buy a debt fund. By mm-hmm. directly going to a bond, mm-hmm. uh, that maths has now shifted. Right. From a tax point of view. Right. There are still other reasons why debt mutual funds uh, can be a better bet. So, number one, diversification. I mean, mm-hmm. why would you put all your money in one or two bonds when mm-hmm. you can get 30, 40 bonds? Sure. Uh, the click of a button. Sure. Um, and also, uh, liquidity, right? Mm mm-hmm. The fact that you can sell a bond, how to sell a bond, is most people don't understand or know. Mm-hmm. But that said, I think uh, bonds or direct investing in bonds has a bright future. Um, that budget is a trigger, mm-hmm. but uh, in the long term, once this bull market has its has its breaks, has mm-hmm. its you know, well, maybe even moves into a bear market people will start looking at bonds and mm-hmm. i think that's when that that big moment will arrive
0: yeah no i really i uh, i would hope so um because i was speaking to someone a while back and what they told me about bonds and the behavior of a retail investor with bonds is they're not interested in relatively safe bonds they always seem to want to go for the high yielding bonds above 10%, so 10 percent then 11 11 12 13 whatever percent and this is where I don't I don't quite get it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is if you're looking for a, a yield product, surely you want to be in equities, and if you're in a safe, if you're looking for a safe product, then surely you want to be in bonds. But maybe maybe I don't get this, and maybe I'm wrong about this. But it seems like retail behavior is the other way around. When right? when they start looking at equities, they're like, okay, what's gonna you know be safe with my money? And then when they start looking at bonds, they're like, oh, what's gonna give me a good yield? So I mean, do you see that behavior changing as well, or is that a consequence of education?
1: I think uh, people do seek out high yield bonds um, because they think that FD may pass it brain Why would I go to a stockbroker? Mm-hmm. why would I go to an mm-hmm. advisor? Um, and they underestimate the chances of losing all their money in a default. Mm-hmm. India has has had episodes of default, very mm-hmm. prominent ones, ILFS two thousand eighteen, yeah, yeah. uh the freezing of six Franklin schemes in twenty twenty, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, has happened but uh, those high the the lure of fixed returns high returns is massive yeah that's true i think one thing that i've seen
0: coming up recently a lot is invoice discounting bonds that are short term and extremely high yield um and it seems like there's a lot of investors in that so i i don't know what the the background to that is maybe there's some some regulatory pressure that's just you know uh a pull effect from people wanting high yield bonds
1: so uh, yes it's a combination of pull effect and innovation so a lot of startups have gotten into that space um, and it is mouthwatering yields the problem is that it those unregulated there are no mm-hmm. safeguards number 2 the um, pe- companies are right now using workarounds mm-hmm. to to get that uh, invoice discounting operational again legal gray zone mm-hmm and tax i mean that's business income tax at your slab rate mm-hmm. i don't see much advantage for it for an ordinary individual investor.
0: Mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah that's true because it's extremely short-term business income yeah. that makes sense so i mean we've talked about these regulated institutions and all these their products in their future uh but the thing that i really wanted to talk about that i'm sure you want to be talking about as well is how influencers have played into this ecosystem and um, because it seems like, I, I think you said earlier today, is that when, when the regulator has put pressure on these regulated institutions and they're not able to operate with freedom, uh, the people that are able to operate with freedom have grown substantially.
1: Am I right? It's correct. Correct. Um, so let's trace out the big the origins of influencing and, and the growth it's had in India. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lo- a lot of this is a pandemic phenomena. Before mm-hmm. pandemic, yes, there were some YouTubers who were doing well. But the pandemic suddenly gave them that, uh, that massive boost. Because everybody was sitting at home, there's nothing else to do but watch videos and invest in the market, yeah. all, all of it online. Um, and sure, they have certainly grown the size of the investor base. They have educated a lot of people. There's no doubt about that. But along the way, a lot of perverse incentives have been built into their Mm -hmm. business model. Mm -hmm. So number one is the broker affiliate links. Mm -hmm. The way it works is that you put a link to a broker below your profile, below your post. Your followers go through that link. They, um, when they trade, you get a cut out of every single trade. Oh, wow. So you have every incentive to create clickbait video after clickbait video that gets people to trade. And... You know, there is this SEBI study which has shown that 89% of traders are not making money. Yeah. So this is money that's coming at the expense of the investors of India. Right. It's not a healthy cycle. Right. Um, the other problem is that a lot of them don't disclose that they have got, they have been paid for making videos. Mm-hmm. And nobody's checking this. Mm-hmm. So there is a body called the Advertising Standards, Standards Council of India or mm-hmm. ASCII. They are supposed to check this. But... They are not a government body. They're a sort of industry body. So they have no power to issue any penalties against anyone. We looked at the orders that ASCII has passed. So ASCII actually goes and investigates some of the influencers and passes orders all on their website. Mm -hmm. But that's it. They pass an order and there's no penalty. So nobody's checking whether these guys are disclosing
0: uh, whether
1: a particular video is sponsored or not. Now, of course, some of them are principled and they do disclose. But... Unless there is some regulation in place, there's nothing stopping the system from being misused. So, the, the, there's no
0: question of going after the digital platforms that are doing this. Like for example, YouTube is a platform where a lot of these influencers produce these videos. There's no question of you know holding the gi- digital platforms to account to say, okay, somebody's advertising through your platform according to the various laws and regulations you operate under. They must disclose that this is an advertisement but they're not they're, i mean are are the platforms doing anything about it should the government make the platforms do anything about it is there do they have a role to play
1: here in the longer term i think yes but this will need action not from sebi which whose jurisdiction is restricted to finance but from the government of india because there are not just finance influencers there are also health influencers who spread spread all kinds of misinformation around health uh, there are you know people talking about Bollywood, about all kinds of sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it would need concerted action from the government
0: at a macro level. No, that's true. And uh, I think that's a a long journey
1: of uh, content moderation. And it's complicated because we are a democracy at the end of the day. We have freedom of speech. What is there to stop, you know, some politician or somebody from using that power to stop somebody criticizing them? That's absolutely true. Very careful about... The use of these powers yeah absolutely true
0: i think maybe we uh we need to find a way to keep our you know digital platforms fee- free and fair but also not misleading you yeah. know yeah. so is this is the influencers they're presumably behind the rise of this fno trading because they're getting a cut of the fno trades yes. right do you see any actioners is the sebi doing anything about this thing because i think as we spoke before 90 to 95 percent of all
1: traders lose money in fno trading yeah so in fact, SEBI's are on the right path. They have proposed in their consultation paper that came out very recently that they would cut off the regulated entities from the influencers. They, uh, therefore, if the circular becomes law, you can't have brokers giving affiliate links. You can't have brokers having arrangements and tie-ups uh, in all kinds of indirect ways with influencers.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one interesting thing that you know struck me from the advertising codes is that if there's a link to any product or service on any video, that's considered an advertisement, and then what that content can contain, including famous names, faces, companies, returns, performance, strategies, anything of that sort is banned. And the penalties for violating that advertising code are immense. It's like you know your cut off, your entire organization is cut off from the exchanges and trading for a day at, or at, until that video is taken down. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed, it's effective. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed these influencers come back on track to educating the public. Yeah, I think they will be. I'm very, very glad that Sebi's taken this step. Good. No, I mean, uh, I think let's let's leave the influencers aside. Uh, we've got a long history of speaking about them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you've, you've been in this ecosystem for a while and you've seen this journey. So what's that journey been like? You know, how did you end up getting into... Being a journalist, I I saw somewhere that you originally studied law, if
1: I'm not mistaken. I did, I did. I studied law. uh, And I sometimes say to myself that had I practiced law, I would have earned a lot more money than I (laughs) currently make. Um, No, so I switched my fields because um, at that time, my parents um, often would ask me that, you know, how you tell us how we should invest money. I don't know why they were asking basically a kid. But... uh, But they were and it set off this chain of thought in my mind it sent me down the rabbit hole i wanted to read as much as i could i wanted to study this Mm -hmm. so i did a second degree in economics and um, then after i finished my education i came back and i worked for an ria for a while Um, and i thought this is this would be my profession i would be an investment advisor Um, but while i was doing this now unfortunately um, the pay wasn't great at that time so, while I was doing this, there was a vacancy at a website that I'm very fond of, Value Research. Mm-hmm. And I thought, let's take a chance, let's apply. And uh, to my surprise, they gave me a call and, and they liked my work and they hired me. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, the biggest break that I've caught in my career so far because um, Direndra Kumar, the founder of Value Research, uh, it's a small company and mm-hmm. uh, people in editorial, he supervises directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I had the privilege of working for somebody who had already spent, you know, 20, 25 years in the mutual fund industry talking about investing. Um, So, so I spent almost two years in value research. So,
0: sorry, just a quick question. What, what exactly is value research? Unfortunately, I'm not aware. So what do they do and
1: what is the editorial team in value research? Sure, sure, sure. So value research is most well-known for its star ratings. Mm. It assigns star ratings to mutual fund schemes and a lot of investors pick schemes based on those star ratings. Um, But it is a lot more than just that. They uh, provide detailed reports on uh, mutual funds. There are two magazines that they publish. So one is called Mutual Fund Insight. The other is called Wealth Insight. Uh, Wealth Insight is about stocks. Mutual Fund Insight is about mutual funds. Um, So... To put it in a nutshell, they are a mutual fund research company. Mm -hmm. And the editorial team there um, essentially works with the analysts to produce good report, produce good research. Gotcha. Okay, so you had a lovely break where you got into the editorial team of value research. Mm -hmm. And from there, how did you end up with the Mint? Again, uh, lots of twists and turns. So in between, I was working at a fintech. And um, my former boss at Mint used to follow me on Twitter. And I was quite outspoken on Twitter. I still am. So one day she just messaged me saying that you want to come and join Mint. And that was a dream for me. So I jumped at it. And now it's been four and a half years. Wow, man. What an amazing story of, uh, I
0: think that's life. And you get some lucky bricks and keep cracking at things and things end up working out. for you. That's a really, really lovely story. So apart from being a journalist, you're also an author. I think uh, one of your greatest books has been about Mr. Rakesh Shinjanwala. Uh, what what inspired you to
1: write about him? So two reasons. Uh, the deeper reason is that uh, he epitomizes the Indian investor's dream. Like if you were to close your eyes and think about one person mm-hmm. who symbolizes success in investing in mm-hmm. India, it's, it's him. Uh, the more practical reason was that uh, when Rakesh passed away, there was a surge of interest mm-hmm. in him. And we felt this is the right time to write this book. Mm-hmm. We also noticed that although there are you know, hundreds of videos, articles, resources available about him online. There is no systematic compilation of his life, and mm-hmm. we wanted to be the first ones to do that. Right. So, do you have any any favorite anecdote or any story
0: or anything that you know from the book from your uh, from your effort of writing the book that stands out to you uh, that you know you'd maybe love to share with people?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I have two co-authors, and we are often asked this uh, together on the panel and we all have different uh, favorite parts mine is the is the big mac- macro uh, bet that he took during the madhu dandavate budget mm-hmm. so basically vp singh had come to power and madhu was the finance minister mm-hmm. a socialist and there was a market consensus that uh, the budget would be anti market and the stock market would tank but rakesh reasoned that um, this would not happen. The, the pessimism was overdone. A lot of the fears were irrational. Like there was some talk about him doing something on education. Now, Rakesh argued, this is a state subject. There's no way that we, that Mr. Dandravadi could uh, alter that. So, so he went big on, and that was his first big successful macro bet. Mm-hmm. The market rallied and, and he made a ton of money. That's, that's one of my favorites.
0: Wow. That's a really interesting story. Uh, Contrary and thinking pays off. Yeah. So Apart from this, uh, the book on Mr. Mr. Junjinwala, where are you going next? What's the next uh, piece of literature we can expect from you?
1: So uh, we are me and uh, some co-authors. We are working on a book um, on one of India's most famous value investors, and um, I guess I'll share more once once uh, that that book. Comes. All right. Well, we'll be watching this
0: space. Uh, we really want to be uh, we want to be sure that we get that as soon as it comes out. Absolutely. Right. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't have very much more in terms of pre-prepared questions, but I do want to hear your thoughts on where you think the Indian market will evolve, you know, particularly whether you think the retail investor base will continue to grow, because I think uh, we're at 100 million DMAR accounts and about 30 million or so are above 2 lakhs, sorry, above 50,000. And that roughly matches, you know, the number of taxpayers in the country. Do you think there's still growth left? Do you think we will be able to bring more people into the, the
1: market ecosystem? I mean, yeah, should yeah. we? So I want to talk about two game changing proposals, um, that are happening as we speak, um, so one is account aggregator. Mm-hmm. Um, now account aggregator is a system where, um, your wealth manager can access uh, all of your uh, your mutual funds, your stocks, your NPS, your insurance policies, everything in one place and can deliver good advice mm-hmm. based on your full portfolio. Today, you have to sit collecting all that. You might not even know where half of your money is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this will uh, dramatically transform wealth management as we know it. Of course, there are some niggles in place and I'm interested to hear your views on that also. Um, but... I think account aggregator is is the big game changer in the room. The second one is a SEBI proposal on uh, real estate investment trusts or REITs. SEBI has proposed that uh, they would lower the minimum ticket, the minimum uh, size of a REIT from 200 crores to 25 crores. Mm -hmm. What this does is it enables investors to take specific uh, bets, specific investments on specific properties. Mm -hmm. Today, when you invest in a REIT, you get access to, you know, many 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 properties that they hold across the country which is great that's diversified but there could be people who have done their research on a particular piece of real estate and mm-hmm. as indians you know we are very into real estate so so that will not only enable that that fractional investing to happen mm-hmm. from the investor side but it will also allow people whose money is locked away in real estate who for whom it's a clunky thing that either you sell the entire house or uh, you can't sell one fourth of a house. Mm-hmm. Um, that unlocking can happen. Mm-hmm. So, very excited about uh, the REITs circular. Um, another part of it is that, uh, so it's called the SME REIT circular mm-hmm. small, medium, and micro REITs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another facet of it is that currently REITs can only invest in commercial property. Mm-hmm. With this circular, they can also invest in residential. There is no commercial qualification. Again, a lot of value unlocking for Mm -hmm. uh, all of us in India. Yeah. So that's my other big sector of excitement.
0: No, that's both those. I mean, so I'm uh, just not something we've ever spoken about in this podcast, but I'm
1: very closely
0: involved with the account aggregator ecosystem. We are considering becoming an FIU over here and building something and you know hopefully we will put it out to our users soon and you know I guess we'll we'll talk about that in a second but I want to maybe just talk about this REITs thing for a second so my one concern that's often pulled out with REITs because I think there's only four listed in India is that their returns are really terrible they're below even GSECs in some cases and that's because like rental yields in India are terrible like the average rental yield for a property in india is two two and a half percent residential at least that i know from anecdotal experience which makes the overall yield on any property look pretty poor um i i don't know whether that you know when i when i consider that as an investment product um uh, it's maybe not the best do you think this
1: this would change that or what's your view with that so i agree with you on the residential part residential yields are very low two percentage commercial real estate is a different story mm-hmm. there. It would be, I think around eight to 10%. Mm-hmm. Now reads uh, returns look bad, uh, often because most of their returns come in the form of dividends, come in the form of payouts. They are mandated to, to give away 90% of the rental income that they collect. Mm-hmm. So when you see the price chart, you know, you'll actually see a flat or negative chart because most of that money has come through distributions. Um, now, on uh, the yields, I would add one more thing. So, yes, on an average, residential yields are very low. But there are always parts of cities that are just growing, that have just been settled. Mm-hmm. And the yields are much higher. I mean, you, you know, people do this all the time in their lives. They go and buy houses in slightly outskirts, wait for the appreciation to happen, mm-hmm. and then sell the house. This will allow this to happen in a far smoother manner. Right? You just have to go and buy a unit mm-hmm. on a stock exchange. That's it.
0: And I'm much lower ticket size, which is, I think, what's really important for Indian investors, because the ticket size for a property investment, even if it's a non-residential property, is in the order of tens of lakhs. You know, I don't think you get any material investment underneath that, irrespective of where you are in the country. Maybe you can do that a lot smaller size, if I understand you
1: correctly. Yes. So currently the ticket size for listed REITs, uh, if I remember correctly, is uh, a few thousand rupees, mm-hmm. not in the lakhs. Uh, for SME REITs, SEBI uh, has proposed a higher ticket size, but again, nothing compared to the, let's say it costs a crore to buy a flat in India's metros at mm-hmm. 2BH, average 2BHK. Nothing like that. It will be a fraction mm-hmm. of that.
0: Well, also, I, I find really interesting about this proposal is, yeah, I think on one hand, you get the ability to, you know, invest in property. But what's interesting to me is that you can get a lot of small medium developers uh, and, and construction companies. That are able to unlock value from their balance sheet, because rather than having to sell, you know, a thousand actual physical units, they can list everything as a reit, and then unlock value like Correct. that. Correct. Correct. That is what is so exciting about this sector. Yeah. No, that I think if they're able to bring this out and, and you know, the right rule set is in place, fingers crossed, this is going to be a game changer for the real estate market in India. Yes. yes. So let's come to the other innovation you spoke about, uh, account aggregator ecosystem, or Sahamati. Uh, I, I have to say, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think if and when, rather, when they make this work at scale, it'll be transformational. So a little, little anecdote from my side, actually. Um, so I've, I was in the UK for, for a long time I was studying there, working there. They were the first ones to launch open banking. And their open banking was very limited in scope. It was just like data sharing of current accounts. And even then, it was a revelation because it allowed for a lot of account switching, it allowed for a lot of expense optimization. And I think if the account aggregator ecosystem over here is able to deliver deliver on its huge promises, then it really will transform the overall you know ecosystem. Um, but wh- where do you think we are in that journey? I mean, what are you hearing as,
1: as a journalist? I'm sure a lot of people must be speaking to you. Yes. Um, there are lots of niggles, unfortunately. Uh, so if you just think of banking to start with something as basic as credit card data is not part of account aggregator right now. Mm-hmm. So if you're, for example, building a spending tracker, an app that tells you, this is where you spent your money. This is where you could save. This is where you could smartly manage your money without your credit card spending. How is that app going to be effective? Mm-hmm. Similarly, loans are not part of account aggregator. Again, huge part of our lives, our personal finance, uh, this is just on the banking side. Um, the mutual fund, uh, on the stockbroking side, there are a whole bunch of other things. Um, happy to get your inputs on that. also.
0: Yeah. So I think, uh, I think depositories have only just come onto the account aggregated ecosystem. And when I say only just was sitting here in September and I think only in August, they were actually fully on board and went live. So all the the promised data is not really coming through, and the hope/slash slash explanation is that because it's new, they haven't figured everything out yet, and they will. And the other component of it is they've not scaled up the amount of data that they're able to facilitate the transfer of, which is to say, I think right now there's seventeen million handles on the account aggregator ecosystem and seventeen million data pools. but the data pools that are coming out of the depositories are well underneath a hundred thousand. If I'm if my information is correct, and I could be wrong. Um, which suggests to me that in order for it to work, in order for this to really deliver on its value, they need to scale up their, you know, infrastructure and find a way to deliver the complete data packet, which which they're not able to do right now. Yeah. That's one major concern. And my second major concern of this is that. Most of the economic value in this country sits in joint accounts um, and, and joint folios and joint folios and that's a, that's, a, uh, that's a cultural thing because we want in the event of you know someone's demise we want our loved ones to have access to that and it also helps to clarify inheritance issues which happens a lot in India but that data is not available on the account aggregator ecosystem. So, if you're advising someone and you're not really able to get a complete picture of that data, you may as well have nothing.
1: Yeah yeah Just do this thought exercise that if you're able to um, collect somebody's entire financial information in one app and just put a simple instruction that uh, if there is no activity in this person's account, then all of this information has to go to a designated person who this person has said is my nominee is my heir. Mm-hmm. It will solve the biggest pain point in personal finance today, which is that people pass away without telling their families where their assets are. The families spend a humongous amount of time trying trying to figure this out. Just getting the information, forget the Mm -hmm. nomination part, forget the transmission part. Yeah. This is what account
0: aggregator can solve massively. And I Oh yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that at all, honestly. I had not considered that use case, but I thank you for bringing it up that that's a massive issue for people you know after someone's demise they don't know where the money lies yeah so that's and even if they're on the account they don't know where the money lies Correct. so that's that's interesting uh but you know one question i wanted to ask you with the account aggregator ecosystem uh, and again i'm hearing something is that a lot of the players within the ecosystem are not happy with how it's played out for them particularly the banks and they're purposefully uh I'd rather I wouldn't put it there purposefully doing anything, I think they're, they're not delivering it to the best of that capability because they don't feel like they're benefiting from the ecosystem. So
1: how true is that? Where do you think that's going to go? Do you think that's a solvable problem even? Yeah, so this is something I've heard a lot actually because banks don't have that much to gain. They already have that data sitting with them. Mm-hmm. They don't have that much to gain by sharing it. And so they're dragging their feet. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. I think the regulator, uh, RBI, needs to crack down heavily and make sure that banks do share information in a standardized manner and timely. Mm -hmm.
0: Because I think we spoke earlier about how bank RMs are distributing their own bank products. If you start sharing that information around, um, I don't
1: think they'd have the same ability to do that. Great. That's strong information advantage that they have, the unfair information advantage that they have, that goes away if you share mm-hmm. the data. Yeah.
0: No, I, I, I really do hope that they figure this out because I think if and when they do, it'll be an absolute game changer for this country. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess any, any final, any closing thoughts on where you think uh, the financial markets of this country are going to go and you know, maybe we can talk about the trajectory of influencers and, yeah. and what, that, what that's going to look like. Uh, maybe where we'll be in three, five years from now.
1: So I'll say where I think it should go. And I hope Sebi listens and I hope some of those <laughs> regulations change. I think the burden on the regulated part of finance has to be lessened. There's too many rules on RIAs. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, this is, this is then the numbers, right? 1,300 yeah. RIAs serving 140 crore people. How is this going to work? It doesn't. It doesn't. just
0: doesn't, and and it, there's no incentive for new RIs to come in, uh, come come on board.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that burden has to be lifted. On the other hand, there are no rules on influencers right now. Now, now Sebi cannot directly regulate them. Um, there are freedom of speech issues, etc., involved. But Sebi is on the right path when it says that we will cut off the money. We will stop the funding. <laughs> Fantastic. I hope that happens. It will. Go a long way towards fix, fixing the system. I I maybe I want to challenge that thought a little bit
0: from a little bit of experience. I don't think that they'll be able to cut off the money, however, however you however you dice this. Because this is not a case, in my opinion, of the fact that the influencers need the regulated financial ecosystem. I think it's the other way around. Because the Finfluencers own the customers. They own that customer attention. So if they can't monetize one way, they'll find another way to monetize. And one would hope that their incentives stay aligned. And we, over here and at Passasman, we we want to be 100% certain that our incentives are aligned to our viewers and our customers. But that's not always the case. I think we've seen with you know some of the more nefarious practices
1: in the pumps and dumps and the cryptos and and, and the like. So uh, you're right. And i think one solution to this could be that come up with a set of conditionalities allow regulated entities to fund any kind of content creator whether it's organized media whether it's a influencer, whether it's a guy doing youtube videos whatever it is provided that person signs up to a certain set of rules for example if that person promises that i will not take money from unregulated entities i will not take money from crypto firms um if that person promises that i will not induce someone to trade i will not make a video which says you know 50 percent returns from this trade then yes you can fund them legitimately no problem i i think this can be one solution to the problem that you just highlighted yeah i really hope so because um
0: i don't think the the solution to to the finance problem in this country is to is to cut people up i think it's Cut, you know, s- separate industries. I think it's trying to trying to ensure that incentives are aligned, uh, because I think that's and and that's you know easier said than done. Uh, if we're being honest.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, not so much to cut, but to uh, make sure that you know the money is going to the right places. Yeah. So
0: I mean, just speaking of the money going to the right places, as a journalist, I'd I'd love to know what's the uh, what's the craziest story of malfeasance or fraud or negligence that you've covered if you know if we'd like to talk about that without naming any names if oh gosh
1: there are so many uh, <laughs> we love to hear all of them you know so i'll, I'll give you a few of them um, you can take your pick on whichever is the, sure <laughs> is the craziest um now we all know about misselling of insurance of endowment mm-hmm. insurance policies so there is a guy in rajasthan um who initially was an employee at a life insurance company. And he quit his job because he was fed up of the mis-selling. And uh, he started going to people who've been mis-sold policies and telling them that I will get your money back. uh, Just give me a small fee for it. Um, After he did this for a while, the insurance company noticed and it was like, what on earth is happening? Um, There was a case filed against him for, um, for data theft. And he went to jail for a month. Oh God! Yeah, he went to jail for a month. Uh, he fought that case. He, he was acquitted, um, and then he filed a counter case against the insurance company, which um, I think is still progressing. But there was a point at which a warrant was issued against the CEO of that insurance company. Wow! Um, without going too much into the specifics of of uh, the company, it highlighted strongly the problem of. Just how intense insurance mis-selling is. The kind of commissions that are paid out on endowment policies just drives this. Like you have to, when the incentives are bad, this will happen. Yeah. Anything in uh, in equities or in the equities market? Um, so not exactly equities, but um, two, two other cases that come to my mind. One is... Um, the mis that happened uh, in case of Carvey private wealth clients. So Yeah, the Carvey story is one hell of a story, man. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is something that we wrote about in 2019, where a lot of Carvey clients had been sold NCDs uh, of builders. All those builders defaulted. And uh, the, car- the Carvey clients banded together, formed a group, went to court, filed civil and criminal cases. Um, and at one point, there was a, um, a, I think there was a court order or a warrant against the Carvey Private Well CEO. And that's when it came to our notice. We covered it. This is very unusual. Normally, investors just write it off or mm-hmm. they're often too small. They're individuals, right? they have mm-hmm. jobs to do. Yeah. But uh, but by coming together, they brought some accountability to this system. Something very similar happened with Yes Bank. So Yes Bank, eighty-one bonds were missold by RMs of Yes Bank to customers of Yes Bank. Um, so, what's a Yes Bank 80, 81? So, an 81 bond is uh, a bond that is written off if the bank's tier one capital falls below a certain threshold. So, basically, it's it's a quasi equity product. Uh, it's meant to absorb losses, it's super high risk mm-hmm. debt. Of course, the yields are also high. Yeah. Uh, so
0: I think maybe let's just explain to our viewers that banks have different tiers of capital as per their regulatory requirements. Um, and tier one capital is the safest capital. They should, they should not fall beneath
1: that threshold, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Think of it as their, uh, their basic net worth. Mm-hmm. If it goes into below certain level, then these bonds have to be written off. Right. Now this is high risk stuff. It should not have been sold to individuals in the way that it was. And many of them were senior citizens who had invested a big chunk of their life savings into these bonds. When Yes Bank went belly up, uh, of course these bonds were written off. So again, uh, you know these guys faced the prospect of having their lifetime savings eroded. They came together, they banded together, and they challenged this action. And um, after a long period of struggle, there came a judgment from the Bombay High Court, which, uh, which basically went in their favor against this write-off. So. Again, I mean, uh, you you never think that individuals can can collectively do these kind of things, but hats off to them. I hope more investors uh, follow this and 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 you know hold institutions accountable. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's time for you know a
0: degree of accountability in this ecosystem. Yeah. Um. Just an adjacent question to this. I think SEBI and the exchanges and in most regulated financial institutions have a a number of investments grievier, investor grievance channels, I think scores is the SEBI portal in particular. Um, are they effective at all in, in you know addressing investor grievances or is this kind of collective action really the only
1: way? In many cases, um, with scores, it takes a long time. And so you know, the Association of Registered Investment Advisors in India, ARIA, put out a study on, on SEBI orders against investment advisors, unregistered and registered. They found it takes 33 months for a final order to be passed. Right? And this is a case where SEBI is acting. In scores, you have to first prove, you as a customer, you have to prove your case. Right? It takes a long time. Um, fortunately, uh, SEBI has brought in something new uh, just a couple of months ago. They brought in something called on online dispute uh, resolution, ODR mechanism, which has uh, Basically, um, mediation, conciliation, and arbitration, different stages of dealing with a dispute. The last stage is arbitration. Mm-hmm. If, the arbitra- if the arbitrator finds in your favor you as a customer, then um, you have to a large extent won your battle. It's very difficult to appeal from that stage. So I hope that uh, the ODR fixes some of these issues.
0: Yeah, that's the hope. I think uh, more effective grievance redressal will definitely ensure that the incentives of the players in the market stay aligned. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Although I would say that, uh, you know, grievance comes at the end after the damage is done mm-hmm. to stop the damage from being done. We need to have good regulations.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. But what I find is that if you know, you can get away with something, then it was going to take yeah. 33 months. Even if you're breaking the law and it's going to take three years for any order to be passed, you can run with your money. Yeah. yeah, But if it's, if the, if the chance of enforcement and the speed of enforcement is higher then the uh the incentive to even step into a gray zone is much much lower I agree.
1: I'd, I'd, I'd imagine I agree. that's true
0: yeah but it's. i think it's a very interesting time to be involved in the financial markets yeah
1: yeah
0: so um as an average investor as an amateur investor somebody that's you know maybe sitting with a little bit of money how would you you know start managing and growing your wealth what would you recommend people do what products or channels or whatever you think people
1: would people should access, how would you grow your wealth? I guess is the question. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things. Um one is that earlier they start the better. It is a cliche, but it is extremely true. Uh, just a uh, five years there have been study after study showing that just a five or ten year delay suddenly makes difference of crores to your mm-hmm. end corpus. Uh, the second is that equity does beautifully over the long term. The compounding power is immense. You don't have to make it too complicated. You don't have to figure out which fund manager is going to give beat the market by 3, 4, 5%. You don't have to figure out which star trader, which PMS manager is doing it. Mm-hmm. Historic returns on just the index mm-hmm. have been in the order of around 12%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if we can extrapolate this into the future, but even if they are somewhere within this region, even a standard index fund will do most people well. They'll... Mm-hmm. they'll be able to build their wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
0: just, just an addendum, so because we did a little bit of research into this, is if you expect the Indian economy at a real GDP level to grow at six and a half, seven percent over the next decade, which I think is a reasonable expectation given our past performance, and inflation stays at the RBI's four percent target range, you're already at 11 percent. And you assume that there is some value creation, capital accumulation, you know, even if the index is. Removing the underperformers, adding outperformers, you safely expect the index to generate twelve to fifteen percent. Within that range, you know, God willing, and you know, things break
1: the right way for us. I fully agree. And uh, the third thing I would say is that there is a tremendous hidden power to the NPS to the National Pension System. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that oh, it's my money is locked away till the age of sixty. Why should I bother with it? But trust me, retirement, uh, is a difficult time. Financially Your your income has come to an end. You need a good corpus and NPS has, so I'll give you a couple of uh, mm-hmm. reasons why I'm so bullish on NPS. One is that when you switch within the NPS between equity and debt, there is no taxation. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do the same thing in a mutual fund portfolio, if you switch from one MF to another or one stock to another, every time there's a tax leakage, mm-hmm. The other is that the lock-in until 60 is actually a hidden strength because you protect yourself from you, from the temptation of greed and fear. Yeah. There is this story in Greek mythology where uh, Odysseus and his companions are sailing near uh, some creatures called the sirens. Mm-hmm. And the when the sirens sing, it tempts the sailors to go into the sea and, and mm-hmm. drown and die. Mm-hmm. So they chain themselves to the mast and mm-hmm. that's how they get past that area. NPS is exactly that. You're chaining yourself to the mast until you're 60. <laughs> um, now, the third point, a lot of people object to NPS is that uh, because there is a 40% annuity. So, I want people to understand this very carefully. Um, yes, if you buy the standard kind of annuity, which is annuity with return of purchase price, then the rates are around FD rates 5 6%. They're not great.
0: And, and people, okay. sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you there because I'm not, I'm not sure. I understand exactly how NPS works. So I've maybe lost you in this, in this last one, sure. sure. do you, could we maybe just dig into exactly how NPS works because sure. I, I'll be honest with you, even as someone that's in the markets, it's not a particularly popularized product. So how, how does it, how does the NPS work and why are these advantages that we spoke about, you know, the tax leakages and the, the lock in, why
1: is it relevant given how NPS works? Absolutely. So uh, NPS works a lot like the 401k in the U.S. Mm-hmm. where um, you put money and you allocate it. You mm-hmm. can invest up to 75% of your money in equities. So mm-hmm. you can harness the compounding power of equities. This money is managed by pension funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the pension fund managers are pretty much the same companies which manage mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Um Apart from equities, you can put your money in corporate bonds or government bonds. Mm-hmm. Now, while the money sits in NPS and compounds, there is no taxation.
0: No long term, there no is, short there term. There is nothing. no
1: nothing. As long as the money is inside the NPS wrapper, you pay zero tax. Is there a cap on how much you can put into NPS? That's the magic. There is no cap. So, yes. So, I'll explain my point a little bit. There is a cap on the tax benefit you get for NPS. Right. So you get two tax benefits when you invest in NPS. Number one, under at Section 80C up to 1.5 lakhs, you get uh, relief on your contributions. Um, this is on the employer uh, so employee side. Your employer can also contribute. That also is given tax relief. Uh, so there the limit is 10% of salary mm-hmm. up to an amount of 7.5 lakhs. Extremely mm-hmm. high. Mm -hmm. And that benefit is even there in the new regime. So, even if you give up all of your deductions, that is one that still remains. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Apart from ATC, there is the benefit of CD one b which is a 50,000 rupees benefit exclusively for NPS. That money can't, that deduction is not available for any other product. Uh, In ATC, there are other competing products also. So, uh, this is the first E of the EE structure of nps so exempt exempt and partly taxed is how nps works so we've discussed the first exemption We've discussed the second exemption now people have a problem with that third that partly taxed while a problem to begin with let's let's understand that 60 percent the majority of your corpus is tax-free you can withdraw tax-free at majority um, now that let's come to that 40 percent the pain point you don't pay tax on in one go. So it's not, if you have a one crore corpus, you don't suddenly have a 40 lakh taxable income. You have to use that 40 lakhs to buy an annuity, an annual payment of income. And it is that income which is taxed. So let's say that that 40 lakhs buys you some 3 lakhs of annual income. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Anyway, that's going to put you in a very low tax lab. How Mm -hmm. much tax are you going to be paying on that? Mm -hmm. Retirement, usually your other kinds of incomes come to a halt. So it is not this big bogeyman that is put up um the other p- thing that people don't like is in the annuity rates are low they are like fd rates 5 6% and yes that is true uh, for annuity with return of purchase price so what does that mean you buy the annuity when you retire and when you pass away your family gets that 40 lakhs back right so therefore the insurance companies keep the rates low now there is a strategy a lot of people you know would be single their kids might be financially independent. Whatever reason, they might be able to not uh, have to pass on that 40 lakhs to their kids. Mm -hmm. They have the freedom to choose annuity for life. This means that the annuity stops when you die and your family gets nothing back. Now, again, that sounds scary, but there is a strong benefit to this that the rates then shoot up because the insurance company starts betting on you dying. And every year that you survive, (laughs) You won. Yeah. Uh, there was this famous uh, bet that uh, a French lady took against a real estate speculator where he told her that uh, I want to buy your house, uh, but I'll pay you a fixed sum of money till you die. And then I get your house. Turned out that she outlived him. <laughs> it's his kids who were still paying her annual payments. Uh, many times the value of that house had been paid to her by the time she passed away. Wow. So, so there is a lot of hidden power in, within NPS, people don't realize. So the third thing that I would ask new investors to do is please open an NPS account. Focus on your retirement. It's, it may be a long time away, but but you need to start as early as you can. Wow. I think
0: that's a really powerful message for our viewers. And I think on that uh, really important note to go and open an NPS account, I think we're going to end our podcast. And I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts and insights. It's been a really fun afternoon. And I really enjoyed hearing what you have to say. Like, guys, well, Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is produced by Elixir Equities Private Limited, a registered research analyst. Registration number INA 00004787. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Investment in the securities market are subject to market risk. We strongly advise all investors to read all related documents carefully before investing.